Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Beetlejuice or the juice must flow. <laughs> Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, HV. It's the time for another episode of Horror Vanguard. My name is John, your co-ghost, joined, as always, by Ash. Ash, how you doing? I'm doing all right. <laughs> I, yeah, me too. I, I am feeling good. I'm feeling pumped. I am juiced up for this episode. Uh <laughs> But before we go any further, it's time for a word from our sponsors. This program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horror vanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you. You'll forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with freaky stuff. Today we are talking about the classic Tim Burton film, Beetlejuice. Now I know, like I, 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 I always thought that we'd come to this point. I mean, we had to. We had to arrive at Beetlejuice, and I'm, I'm honestly shocked that we've gone over a hundred episodes now, and we're just getting around to one of like the definitive spoopy movies. Uh, it's it is well overdue, but hopefully this will be a fun Halloween treat uh, for everybody. Uh, so listen to us talk about Beetlejuice. I am I'm I'm kind of assuming that everyone uh, listening to this has seen it. Obviously, everyone's seen it multiple times, but on the off chance that people haven't seen it or people haven't seen it in a while, Ash, maybe you could just remind everybody, refresh everybody's memory. What is Beetlejuice all about? I went I went really in depth for this one um because this is this is an obscure film so this one needs a little more clarity. Mhm. Yeah. There is likely no better articulation of Mark Fisher's capitalist realism than Beetlejuice. You spend your life toiling for a loathsome boss and on some sad and lonesome day when it's all said and done, you close your eyes and rest for the last time only to awaken in a neoliberal bureaucracy fueled by means-tested rules and an ever-twisting maze of regulations. Beetlejuice is a horror movie not for the monsters and spoopy ghouls, but for the vision of an afterlife that is an eternal day job. <laughs> Death in Beetlejuice is not some great unknown. It's an office job where you're literally shuffled around like so many long-forgotten forms. This is an Hieronymus Bosch painting for contemporary service industry capitalism. However, just as with Bosch's paintings, there was an excitement to Beetlejuice. We can't but help depict our own freedom, even when the leaden horizon of capitalism suffocates our minds. When painters like Bosch depict the austere perfection of heaven, they reveal a lamentation of glory. In the swirling and eternal cacophony of their depiction of hell, we find a monstrous excitement. In the center of this hellish eddy, we find a lone man, half-used car salesman and half-demonic carnival barker. In a moment of weary solitude, he looks into the camera and we see ourselves in his gaze. 
Beetlejuice is the Miltonic Satan for a more weary and cynical time. And just like the first of the fallen, it's time that we make a heaven out of hell. Jump in the line, rock your body in time, as we discuss Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, <laughs> I I was not expecting to have references to Hieronymus Bosch, Milton, and Mark Fisher all in one Ash Pracy, but my God, you pulled it off. <laughs> this yeah. is this is my like uh, a nu- nutritional pyramid, but of literature. We've got Bosch, we've got Milton, we've got Fisher. Just phenomenal work. Uh, I that's that's amazing. <laughs> Why? Thank you. Um, I mean, it's it's strange. I I genuinely am a little bit surprised that it has taken us this long to talk about Beetlejuice because I think it's just one of those anyone who's into spooky movies ha- has almost certainly seen this multiple times. Oh yeah, yeah. I think this is this is this is a movie that a lot of people encounter if you you were like a weird teen at all. Yep. Like this come this comes with the like so you're kind of a goth or outsider teen starter package, right? You get the you get the representation of Lydia Dietz and Beetlejuice. Yeah, absolutely. If if you yourself are a, a what is it? What she says? Strange, a strange and unusual. Strange and unusual. Then yeah, you will be into this movie. Where should we start? Uh, so so usually usually we start with a little talk about the context of the film and the movie itself. But given given how popular Beetlejuice is and how much discourse we have, um, let's let's roll right right into it. Um, but there is there is just one thing I wanted to say about the experience of Beetlejuice mm-hmm. and like uh, uh, D- David Lynch. Uh, I, I don't want to say a rant because I don't think David Lynch can rant. But like he he went on this like beautiful little tirade about watching movies on your smartphone and like so much of cinema is lost when you watch it on a smartphone or on a laptop or even your TV at home. Mm. It's just not it's not built for that medium, right? It's the difference in an experience of seeing a painting physically in some kind of art museum or like buying a one quarter size print for your wall. Yeah. You know, there's there's a huge difference in experience when you encounter this art. And Beetlejuice is one of those films where, like, it's weird to say this because I'm saying this about Beetlejuice, but, like, you really do need to see Beetlejuice on the big screen if at all possible. I would agree completely, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of, like, nuance to the acting in this movie that has kind of gotten lost in, like, our, our understanding of these characters and the discourse in there. Like, Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice gets kind of, like, summed down to his loudest funnest moments but there's a lot of like moments of clarity where where keaton will just pause and you 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 can just see so much in in his eyes when he's portraying beetlejuice's character there's something almost damaged almost almost haunted inside of beetlejuice himself that yeah that like i had never picked up until i saw this on the big screen until i could really see that like subtle facial acting and those portrayals. So like Beetlejuice becomes this really good object lesson for the importance of being able to access media as it was intended to be delivered. You know what? I would not, I would not kind of expect that, but 
it's totally true. It's totally true. I uh, yeah, it's it's a I I would I would say so as well. <laughs> but that was just a little thing I had on the the importance of you know physical media. And you're right. He he is kind of like a tragic figure in places. And we'll we're gonna get we're gonna get into this more in due course, obviously. Oh yeah, we will talk about Beetlejuice. I do think that's like credit to to Keaton as an actor, who is just phenomenal. It's so good. I in a way he's so good, he sort of like almost damages the tone of the rest of the film. Because whenever he's not on screen, you're like, "Where's, where's, where's Beetle? Bring, bring back Michael Keaton, <laughs> right?" Like, and I think I think it's really telling that like all of like the successor media, it's been about Beetlejuice. You know, like mm-hmm. the cartoon is about Beetlejuice. The, yeah. In the sequel, Beetlejuice was going to be the hero, right? Like, I think a lot of that comes down to Keaton's acting, especially if you read like what Tim Burton want, wanted to do with the original plot of this movie which was bad and terrible. <laughs> uh, what, what was the original plan? Um, it was a much more serious horror movie. Um, and uh, Beetlejuice would have been a, I think he was supposed to be like a uh, Middle Eastern man, like, like a really short uh, Middle Eastern man or something. So there's like already some weird stuff going on here. And like, Okay, yeah. It was supposed to be a lot more intense with his like going after Lydia Dietz. It wasn't supposed to be like the because in Beetlejuice, like literally, what Beetlejuice is doing is assault. But in the yeah. context of the movie Beetlejuice, it's like, and we'll get into this later. But it's it's goofy. It's a little weird. But in the original uh, intent of Tim Burton, it was supposed to be a lot more serious than that. Tim Burton is a lot like George Lucas and that you need a team of people telling him, no, that's a bad idea. We're not doing that. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise his movies are garbage. Yeah. Otherwise he'll try and do whatever ridiculous thing he's just thought of doing because Hey, yeah. this will be cool. Yeah. Late, late career Burton and late career Lucas, you know, en- yeah, enough some, said. Some big similarities, but this is like, this is like, <laughs> Uh, this is like a prime in his prime, Tim Burton. Oh, this is this is this is definitely peak Burton. Uh, and it does have that kind of like youthful, sort of like exuberant, slightly silly, goofy energy to it. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that's part of what makes this movie really fun is that they didn't go for like a serious or a more serious horror tone, and they went for something that was just weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it, but yeah, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get into how weird it becomes when we have to talk about going to Arrakis. Yeah, uh, the, the, the little-known fact that the, this is based on a story by Frank Herbert. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I was shocked to find out that uh, uh, Beetlejuice's name had become a word of power. Yeah. <laughs> But if we if we're gonna start by talk, talking about this film, we probably have to start by talking about um, property. That's what this film is like about. That's what it establishes its context as in the first ten minutes with mm-hmm. uh, with the Maitlands, who is, they die in like the goofiest possible way when they drive right. off a bridge. 
but really the, the whole the whole point of this film is about this house um everybody in the town is seemingly related to them in some way uh and they're bothered immediately by a realtor who's like someone from new york wants to buy this place unseen and they're like yeah no thank you go away goodbye <laughs> Um, and all we really know about them is that they're they're a gosh darn nice young couple who are maybe having some trouble conceiving, maybe trying to have a baby. Yeah. And they've got this great place in the country. That's what we know about them. Um, and that's that's what this film is about. This film is basically about struggles o- over ownership and property. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Like, that's every everything of this movie. Like, the thing that is driving this plot forward is who owns this home. Yeah, and how far does that go? Right? Does that does that go to? Uh, does that go to your your? If you're no longer corporeal, do you still have any ownership claims? And amazingly, this young couple is good reaganite subjects think that they do (laughs) (laughs) i mean that that is that is the most reaganite possible thing you know like like making making the case through jurisprudence that you are the rightful owner of a home after your death (laughs) and i and and i guess you know there's this there's this point that actually all property is kind of is kind of haunted in a way right a lot of us i mean a lot of us don't own own property a lot of us like move like every year every few months you know every couple mm-hmm. of years uh and there is something kind of uncanny about and i mean that in like the freudian sense you know un- unheimlich the unhomely of contemporary you know neoliberal precarity where you like you're never really at home right no, yeah, like especially once we get into Beetlejuice, I think we can really flesh this out. But like, there there are ghosts living where we live now. You know, like there's so yeah. much about the space in which we live is haunted, and even in ways that this movie doesn't acknowledge because it doesn't have the kind of political education required to fully articulate these things. But like, the the rightful owners of the land upon which the Maitland home is built are most certainly haunting it. <laughs> you well, know, like there yeah. is, there, there is a deep history of, of ghostly forces at work here, right? That history in and of itself is a ghost that haunts this space. And, and like, just like the Maitlands, you know, like the, it's struggling to be seen and it's struggling to be heard because it's being drowned out by the cacophony of just this, like, mad liberal politic world of just like deranged aesthetics and this notion that like i mean it's a it's a very uh it's a very late 80s idea this notion that property is an asset um i mean reagan and thatcher both gave speeches about how it was really important to encourage home ownership not because Mm -hmm. people need places to live which they do but because if you make somebody an owner you give them an, an ideological and economic investment in the status quo. Like the, the Thatcher example um, yeah. was, was super like uh, upfront about this was why the sale of social housing to tenants was an important thing because it was about making people into property owners, which would make them uh, kind of invested in how things are. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, we just look at the conflict between the Maitlands and the Dietzes. You know, like, yes. like neither of them are actually interested in resolving the central conflict, which is, you know, these these two families must reside in this single home, and the home itself is quite frankly large enough for to accommodate both of them. I mean, it's enormous. And it's so big. It's gigantic, right? Um, but like, they're they're both too embedded in these reactionary politics of of owning this property to actually reach a conclusion. Well, it's a kind of commodity fetishism, isn't it? Oh yeah, you know it's this idea yeah, of like a, a house is an is an asset. It's it's something that uh, you know has um, has value rather than it, it has exchange value rather than just use value. Um, and they they all commodify it in different ways, which I think is really interesting. So um, Lydia's father, I can't remember his name, Mister Dietz. Uh, he, <laughs> Charles he likes, Charles yeah he likes the house because um, it allows him to live this kind of image of like rural relaxation because he's he's buying the house because you know life in the big city is super stressful and he needs somewhere that is more peaceful uh, so even he is there's this great scene where he finds like a study and uh and he picks up a magazine and it's like a bird watching thing. And he's like, oh yeah, that's what people do in the country. So it's like, he doesn't really <laughs> know how to live there. And he's like, oh, what, what do we do? And he notices uh, there's a binoculars and a, and a bird watching magazine. So he starts looking out and he sees a couple of birds. But then almost immediately, he starts looking at everybody else's houses. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, they've got, a, they've got a nice roof or like oh, terrible parking over there. Because he can't not think about property in terms anything other than asset yeah and i mean like even even you know charles Dietz for his job he's a high power urban uh uh, like property developer like this is his career his whole yeah he's a gentrifier his his entire plan like you know like when he first moves there you're absolutely right he wants to he wants to live this bucolic fantasy that his that his income allows him to as a way to unwind from his taxing job but then, like once once he realizes that he can never do that, and he's just yeah. committed to being this horrible person, he immediately comes up with a plan to gentrify and destroy this entire tiny little town. Yeah, he literally doesn't know how to do anything else. Like, it's, yeah, and it's like ridiculous. Oh, I was just gonna. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Like, the bird watching scene is just so important here because at, at the only distance he can get away from what he is from like a, a, a the function of his class and from that perspective is to pretend, you know, like he yeah. is no different than a child pretending to be Superman. That's as close as he's able to get to this actual like rural bucolic life. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, the only one, the only one who in doesn't really fetishize, and I use that in the kind of commodity fetishism sense, the house is Lydia. Yeah. Like, when Lydia goes in, like, uh, her stepmother is talking about how hideous it is, how it needs to be aesthetically remodeled. Uh, Her father is like, oh, this will be the place that I can relax and play at being a country gent. Like, what she says when she walks in is like, oh, I could live here. And there's this kind of, like, recognition of, like, what is this space actually for? 
and she's the only one who recognizes that you are not the first in any given home right there always has to be a kind even if it's ostensibly your house there always has to be a kind of hospitality because you know if a house is 100 years old or 200 years old or 300 like there have been plenty of other people there and maybe some remnant of them is still around and yeah yeah and i think like that that attitude of sheer dominance you know it extends to like the uh aesthetic decisions being made in beetlejuice right like otho and delia right like the entire like presence of this bucolic home is is maddening to them because it doesn't match their particular values for arts and aesthetics i think that that's super interesting um i think that's super interesting there's this idea that like because she's a sculptor right there's something there's something really there's something really interesting about the aesthetics in this film um and there are two things that it made me think of right late 80s you're in the middle of like the art world uh getting very upset over like postmodernism the move away from strict mimetic realism um and that's what delia does her her sculpture is abstract and and weird and surreal and kind of rubbish uh, and, it com- <laughs> and it comes into this conflict with like the high, the that very kind of idealized Americana of the house itself. Um, and the other thing that this made me think of is like, isn't aren't like the proportions and the way that like everything is framed and shot? The thing that it made me think of is it's like it's very Pee Wee play Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's got this kind of yeah. weird surreal slightly too large slightly skewed perspective that happens when they're done remodeling yeah i think think, i mean like i i think that makes perfect sense uh given given that this is like a, a tim burton tim burton thing and that's that's literally his his style right like this is this is what tim burton does and it's like I, I think I think it's fascinating what we're doing with uh, uh, German expressionism here, right? Like like uh, Burton did Pee Wee's Big Adventure, right? So we're already yeah, we're already dabbling, we're already dabbling in that aesthetic, right? But like German expressionism is, it's jarring, right? It's meant to unseat us from territories that we should normally find comfortable, right? Like the the, the buildings arc and loom over us. The, the world around us seems to twist and warp, right? You can't trust walking down the street that you could have trusted walking down yesterday because now you know to see that space differently. And I think like part of what's going on here is like we're, we're, we're using that aesthetic in, in the correct sense of German expressionism, right? Like when um, the, the Dietzes move in, you know, they start doing all this architectural work to the home and it becomes like one of those houses that would get dragged on Twitter because rich people have no taste. Yeah. <laughs> but like the the sheer horror of that almost gets lost and how how like fun Tim Burton makes it. Yeah. Uh although it they do basically try and turn it into an into a McMansion. Oh yeah, this is this is absolutely uh, Mick Mansion hell. Please rate the the what the Dietzes do. <laughs> <in the Mick laughs> 
yes, please, in all sincerity, please do this. Because <laughs> it is truly, uh, it, is, it is that kind of baffling wealthy architecture where it's just like, uh, no, no regard for anything outside of like their own selfish interest. Uh, yeah, they've got no like interest in how the house has been used. Uh, the Maitlands lock the attic uh, deliberately to try and and, and uh, keep them out. So, so there's this show in the UK called Grand Designs, and I think it's still on the American Netflix as well. I like like every British person have seen so many of this show <laughs> yeah i love i love grand designs so like the the, the premise of the show is that uh, uh rich people are building these ludicrous disgusting homes that are an affront to the world around them and in our host who is knowledgeable in the ways of architecture uh just kind of goes there and like passively laments everything they're doing and it's just like there, there are so many great moments in this show where the host is like really that's what you're doing <laughs> all right <laughs> Uh, it's it, yeah, it's hosted by a sort of a, a genial middle-aged man called Kevin McLeod, uh, who uh, wanders through like a building site where some earnest man in tweed goes, uh, "Yeah, we've just we've set a budget of uh, three hundred thousand pounds, <laughs> and it's going, it's going to be done in three months, uh, and it's about building a castle based on a sixteenth-century Swiss chateau, but made entirely out of glass," uh, and he'll go. Really? I don't think this will work. And then uh, twenty minutes later, it's like it's now it's now three years later. Right? Yeah, yeah. W we've spent we've spent six and a half million pounds, and I've sold uh, one of my kidneys, uh, and it's all come together <laughs> really well. <laughs> my 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 two favorite episodes is that there's this uh, uh, insane. Uh, I mean, they're all they're all like rich people who've just completely like vacated their senses but there's like uh there, there are two episodes that stand out to me so much in relation to beetlejuice and there's one where the the wealthy people literally have uh, an opulent home that is falling into the sea like like the uh, yep. uh the sea is eroding the soil that uh, undergirds their home and like i am it's not even hyperbole it, their home is falling away and instead of doing the sensible thing, which is relocating, um, they're they're trying to like MacGyver their way through saving their property, and like it, it, this this is baffling. But there's there's another one where like th these rich people go to build a home in this like sleepy former industrial little town, and like there this is like the, one of those tiny towns in the UK where there's only one road in and one road out. And like they are right at the mouth of the town with the road in building this like gigantic opulent little palace for themselves. And and like a good third of the episode is dedicated to the fact that everyone in the town fucking hates them and they hate what they're doing and they hate everything about their shitty little home. Uh -huh. And like when I watch Beetlejuice, I just like I can't help but think of the reaction of all the people in this sleepy little town as like these rich weirdos from New York flood into their community and start building these gaudy monstrosities. Like importing like weird abstract sculptures that, you know, require specially reinforced floors or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so faced with this, faced with this kind of monstrosity, the Maitlands decide to try and haunt the building 
and before before we turn to uh the man the myth the legend the freelance bioexorcist can we just talk about how like shitty and adorable their attempts at haunting are it's the cutest stuff i've ever like they literally try sheet ghosts at some point Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you guys doing that weird sex stuff <laughs> But what's amazing is that the Dietzes, Lydia aside, literally do not even notice them uh, because it's just, it's it it it's just some designer sheets that they cut holes in, uh, and so they make what I I think is the classic move of young homeowners where you encounter a technical problem and you think you can fix it yourself, but then you realize. You have to go to the professionals. I, I mean, the, so there's this this is amazing scene where Delia and Otho are going around the home discussing their remodeling. It's the scene. It's the it's the scene that leads in uh, uh, to the Charles finding his little study. Um, yeah. But like Otho, Otho opens the door, and the first thing we see is the audience is um you know like like the Maitlands, Adam and Barbara. Like Barbara's got a butcher knife in her hand, and she's holding Adam's severed head and his you know, bloody stump of a body is lying on the ground. And like, like, like Lydia or um, Delia and Otho gasp. But then Otho's like, oh my God, deliver me from L.L. Bean. This is so gaudy. <laughs> and, like, and it's just, yeah, like it is, it is so, it, it, so what do you, what do you make of this? What do you make of the fact that, you know, like barring, barring Lydia, who and we'll get, we'll get a lot into Lydia's character. And I think there's a lot of important stuff to talk about Lydia and individualism and like finding community and stuff later. Um, but what do you, what do you make of the Dietz's general inability to see the dead until they find out that they can make money from them? Well, um, the manual for the recently deceased uh, says that people won't see the dead because is it because they can't or they they won't see them uh, uh so the, yeah we get that scene where where um lydia now now that she knows the maitlands um she she's like oh yeah like i read through the book um and and the quote is uh, uh live people can't see the strange and unusual i myself am the strange and unusual indeed she is um but the thing that it makes me think about is uh walter benjamin's thesis on the philosophy of history uh that's what Beetlejuice makes me think about. Uh, <laughs> particularly Theses number six, when um, when he says that uh, the only writer of history with the gift of setting a light to the sparks of hope in the past is the one who is convinced of this, that not even the dead will be safe from the enemy if he is victorious. And this enemy has not ceased to be victorious. And it's so true because as soon as the Dietzes realize that they've found the supernatural, what do they immediately try and do? But turn it into a commodity. Even if you're dead, even if you die, you'll still be uh, turned into a commodity. And I think uh, you can see this in contemporary society, right? With advertising, where it's like, if you're a celebrity now, uh, then and you pass away, your image becomes endlessly commodifiable. There's something kind of horrifying about this, 
that their res- their response to finding out that the Maitlands are real and have consciousness and agency is how do I make money off 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 of this? That's that there is something so like genuinely truly horrifying about that response. And it's it's I, I think Benjamin is right. You know, not even the dead will be safe. You think you you think you're gonna be left alone by the forces of capitalism when you're dead? You must be like that's just shockingly naive. Your image will be plastered on everything. You'll be used to turn your cute small little rural idyllic town into a uh, a, a kind of capitalist hellhole that is all about extracting as much surplus value as possible out of your ghostly labor it's it's a nightmare i think i think uh extracting capital out of your ghostly labor is possibly the best phrase to describe the titular character of this film uh one mr beetlejuice Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> I, have, I haven't been tracking how many times we've said his name on this show, but we must have summoned and unsummoned him an ungodly number of times. He's going to be so mad. Um, Makes his life a real hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they don't go to Beetlejuice. I know, I know we're leading up to this, and I, there's so much to talk about with Beetlejuice, but there is one more important step that I think we should bring up, which is that they don't go to Beetlejuice first. Because mm-hmm. they, they find some instructions that say, if you need help, uh, draw a door. Uh, and they go through a door, and they end up in basically supernatural DMV. Um, <laughs> and they... Uh, the phrase that I, I was thinking about is, like, uh, spectral bootstrapping. Because they're assigned a caseworker, but the caseworker basically says, get them out of the house yourself. So yep. they are expected to like bootstrap themselves out of this situation when they no longer have the material corporeality to deal with boots. Um, this, <laughs> this, is when, this is when they go to our freelance bio-exorcist, Beetlejuice. I do, I do think, I do think that scene with Juno is so. All the stuff with Juno is so important when you consider what the American social safety net actually is. You know, like, like when when you reach out to like any of these public funded uh, uh, health resources, they will direct you to private resources so you can handle it yourself. You know, like if you reach out to your local, uh, you know, like addiction helpline, they will just connect you with some private company that that will pick it up from there. And it's the same thing with mental health. Like all of this stuff just leads back to, to private enterprise. And like, that's literally, that's exactly, you're exactly right. That's what, 100% what Juno does. She's, she's like, oh, okay, read the manual and take care of it, right? She's just redirecting them. And where does that energy go? But back to private enterprise. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So what, um, do, you, what do you think of, of the man of the hour, the star of the show, the ghost with the most? Um do you know what i was thinking of i rewatched it over the weekend do you know what i was thinking of watching it do you remember that joke patreon plug bit that we did uh of like uber but for ghostbusters (laughs) that's what i was thinking about i was thinking about buster makes you feel good uh because he's basically (laughs) that's basically what he's doing like if this was set now he would have an app that he would be encouraging you to download. Oh he's yeah, got like, yep. He's got like his he's got like his daytime TV style commercial 
uh, where he's like, call now. Um, you know, have you been injured? Have you been injured in a trip or fall at work? Uh, and it's, it's, it, I think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, I completely agree. Like it's, it's, it's kind of uncanny. Like, like Beetlejuice is definitely, uh, he, he would be the ultra precarious app based worker of today. <laughs> Uh, unionize your bio-exorcists, people. <laughs> uh, Beetlejuice, join IWW. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Please please open up an industry for bio-exorcism. <laughs> uh, yeah, the ultimate precari- precarized worker. You know, uh, endlessly forced to be flexible, to be working with people who uh, doesn't necessarily choose to work with, but it needs to, uh, and constantly facing the, the the lack of security that comes from, you know, the flexibility of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, one one hundred percent, and this is this is all because Beetlejuice refuses to work within the governmental infrastructure. Right, yep. like Beetlejuice used to work with Juno, right? Like they used to be part of the same, you know, like afterlife bureaucracy. Yeah, but don't like, they say that uh, Beetlejuice was Juno's assistant at one point? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that I think that's so that's so telling that you know, kind of like the antagonist of this film is the one person who's refused to work with this kind of like labyrinthian bureaucratic structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's he's either been forced to do it or has decided that he uh, no longer wants to participate in in this uh, bureaucracy that doesn't seem to be doing a, a great deal of good for the people that it's ostensibly there to help. Well, it's like it's like any it's like any bureaucracy like this. This reminds me of the fate of like every nonprofit here in the States. You know, you form your non your 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 nonprofit company with the intent of doing some good in your community, and you know maybe you do actually accomplish those things, but like by and by your nonprofit will solely exist. Yeah, the skeleton typist. You've got people that are literally flattened like the forms themselves, flying by on wires, just throwing sheets of paper out. Like whatever bureaucratic apparatus exists in the afterlife of Beetlejuice exists to solely sustain itself. All of that disorganized, confusing paperwork is the kind of labyrinth that every every nonprofit ultimately becomes throughout the course of its operation. Uh, or to put this another way, like what is the vision of like bureaucracy and constant work without any kind of outward growth is kind of hell. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a vision of hell. It's a very kind of uh it's a very bureaucratic and very contemporary version of hell but hell nonetheless you know hell is a is the the temp job that literally never ends you know it's like what happened to those people who have been crushed to death and have now been forced to like shoot through this eternal office as like a cross between a filing cabinet and a courier it's like i can't imagine anything worse (laughs) <laughs> yeah no like everybody everybody retains the weight of their deaths in this afterlife right you know obviously except for the maitlands 
you know, like yeah. they they die in a horrific car accident and, and drown. But unlike everybody else in the world, they're not eternally soaking wet or, or, or blue or something because there are protagonists. And of course, that's a convenience. Uh, and um, because it, it's it's Gina Davis and uh, and Alec Baldwin and we need to Alec Baldwin. You know, yeah. Can't have them looking bad in the movie. Oh no, they're 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 not sitting in the chair for that kind of makeup for six no, hours a day before that, shooting. That's why you hire Mike. That's why you hire Michael Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> he will do that. Um, <clears throat> no, I, I think you're. Um, I think you're completely right. Like the afterlife in Beetlejuice isn't some some kind of neutral other nether realm. It's a depiction of hell. Oh, completely, completely. It's a very secular hell though, because there doesn't seem to be a heaven it seems to be like that's this is as good as it gets it basically is just the continuation of everything you had to deal with whilst you were alive it's the it's the political centrist afterlife yeah <laughs> you know like oh we're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna sustain the status quo beyond your your death no change is possible <laughs> <laughs> even even in death where you become a ghost and you, and you can like take on any physical form you can teleport you could do whatever you wish you still have to have a terrible day job at an office absolutely um and i guess we've kind of been talking about this a little bit but i think this connects back to to, to beetlejuice uh what do we what do we think about you know we've been talking about this discourse around like employment and precarity and and class how do we think beetlejuice fits into this Um, I think the, the class depiction of, of Beetlejuice is really interesting, right? Because he is the precarious, pre precarious like freelance worker, right? Like, like today's app-based employee, you know, ostensibly self-employed, but completely reliant on on this like massive bureaucratic system. You know, he's not he he can't truly be free of the system that he's trying to like you know chuck when he's out there working. Yeah, and then like. I think like one of the most telling things is like how Beetlejuice dresses, you know, and like oh, we, we have we have that we have that weird that, that striped suit that he wears, right? Like one evocative of of the German expressionism that is um, a, a part of this entire film, right? Those same kind of like confusing geometries, and then like on top of that, like it's also kind of evocative of like an old time prisoner uniform. Right, oh, like, like the really black and cool. white stripes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and so like like we're 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 tying him into like that almost like a Eugene Victor Debs, like as long as there's a criminal element, I am of it. You know, because yeah. Beetlejuice is is a criminal, right? Like the like the way Juno talks about him is the way that you it's not the way that you talk about your your a rival company, it's the way you talk about a criminal. You know, he is he's gone beyond the pale in his actions. And yeah, then so like his his, his other outfits, like down. he yeah, he like he dons a, a taxi cab getup or like a taxi driver getup at some point, and like he's he's deeply connected into like all of these like working class elements, you know, like like that that is who who Beetlejuice is, and so like like there's so many like class and labor discourses that Beetlejuice is opening up that make his character just so compelling, especially for our very specific type of, of critique and review. Well, I think this brings up an interesting question. And you you mentioned this before we started recording. 
and I have to admit, it did kind of take me by surprise. Um, so I am. I'm just going to ask the question: Is Beetlejuice a libertarian? <laughs> um. So, so there are there are those on the internet who would suggest that Beetlejuice's actions uh, uh, make him some kind of conservative figure. Um, he is he's he's uh, disregarding the government completely, almost doing a pseudo sovereign citizen bit with his refusal to go along with the bureaucracy. Um, his his relationship and uh to Lydia Dietz also plays into this, right? Like with their with their stances on like age of consent laws. Um that that is kind of like the the uh Tumblr and or Reddit take on on reviews of Beetlejuice. That's like the like the like a YouTube like movie theory explained. Is Beetlejuice libertarian? And it's the it's the snake flag, but it's a sandworm. Oh God, no! Oh, that 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 <laughs> that is insanely cursed. That is that is a horrible thing that you have just manifest in the world. I <laughs> I am so mad at you for doing that. If, um, if there was if there was ever like an evil version of our show, that would be their like hundred and gabillionth episode. Yeah, yeah, the horror of Vanguard, but make it ANCAP. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, nope, nope. We're not even going to joke about that. That's too. That's too. That's too that's spooky. Too that's scary. too scary. That's, too, that's <laughs> yeah. too scary. I know um, this is Halloween, but let's let's cool it with the pranks, okay? <laughs> I I honestly found this whole thing super strange that you said that this was like a theory that some people had, um, mostly because of Harry Belafonte. Do go I, on. I will. I will explain. There is there is a scene where they're talking about it's a dinner party, and Beetlejuice gets all of the people at the dinner party singing "Deo," the classic Harry Belafonte song. Mm-hmm. Now, what is that song about? That song is a group of workers Ooh. singing to their boss that they've been working all night and they want to go home. They're done with work. Mm-hmm. It is an it is an anti-work anthem. And Harry Belafonte, uh, kind of long, uh, much more radical figure than people assume. Uh, so no, Beetlejuice is not a libertarian. And I'm not saying that like Burton deliberately chose to put in Har- Harry Belafonte. I, I'm assuming they just went, oh, this will be funny. But actually, when you pay, that, in a way, that kind of makes it more convincing. When you pay attention to what he's actually doing, there is no way, there is no way that this idea that he's a he's a, a libertarian holds any water whatsoever. He is uh he is a, an anarchic libidinal figure that aims to disrupt hierarchies of capital. Does he do it all the way? Absolutely. Does he do it entirely? No, we'll get on to the ending where I think Burton and the kind of film takes a turn into a sort of pat sentimental liberalism. But this 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 nonsense that he's some kind of libertarian figure is I'm sorry is I'm sorry it's just Reddit brain it's just terminal Reddit brain. <laughs> no, no, I completely agree with that. I think that's that, that's a good analysis. It's not it's not a very it's not a compelling argument to to claim Beetlejuice to be like this like ultra capitalist force. Like that is that is the most ludicrous 
imaginable thing you know like like beetlejuice's entire spoken and expressed goal throughout the course and text of this movie is to escape he does not yeah. want to be part of the system he does not want to be part of this world and like when we talk about lydia we'll kind of like talk about like where where some of this breaks down but like he's not he's not becoming a freelance bio exorcist because he wants to hashtag disrupt the haunting market he's he's uh, doing yeah. it because he hates the haunting market and he wants to be free and you know this 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 whole thing of like again very reddit brain to go like oh uh here's this meme about libertarians and age of consent laws uh, which generally holds to be true, but it also misses the point that these kinds of stories are based on the kind of libidinal attraction and fear of the other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because it's it's like there is a certain extent to which Lydia is very sympathetic towards Beetlejuice, right? Uh, and oh yeah, the, yeah, like the, the the kind of it's a classic horror slash gothic trope. This kind of like the dangers of of sexuality expressed in the forced marriage that's like as classic gothic as you can get not not at all kind of condoning because I, I i do actually think that that's the bit where you go ah, it stopped being funny now and this is just getting weird but to kind of reduce that down to like pat libertarianism is just really lazy film criticism yeah, I mean, like Lydia, Lydia and Beetlejuice are mirror characters, right? They're like, in, in this, this is this isn't even interpretation. This is literally the plot of the, the movie. Lydia hates the world of the living because she does not belong there. She wants to die to to transcend into the spectral realm where she feels yeah. she'll be more at home. Beetlejuice hates the world of the dead, and he wants to go back to the world of the living, Right. And their characters mirror in every single aspect. They both want to help the Maitlands, but for incredibly selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. Right. Like like they're both misguided in their actions. They're, they're, they're both taking an individualistic approach to systemic problems. And then like on top of that, like you're absolutely right. Like this is this is Rochester and Jane Eyre. You know, like this is this is literally that relationship. You know, this is this is the stamp bog standard gothic dating situation. Yeah. You know, like an innocent, innocent woman, talented and and generally cool. And then a wild uh, demon man who has to be broken by the end of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And then not, not to mention that the like, Beetlejuice is like hundreds and hundreds of years old and a demon. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think we could do more with our reading there. Like, we can definitely talk about like, that's obviously troubling you know, like, like what is literally being depicted on screen. But I think our, our readings can get more interesting than that. Like, what, what does that like, what is taking this one step further? Tell us about the world we live in, right? Like, what, what, how do, how are their actions intersecting? Like, where are there like, broader political perspectives being informed by, you know, rather than yeah. just kind of like hashtag canceling or trying to hashtag cancel Beetlejuice? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no that's that's not what we're gonna do here um because i think yeah this fun that to do so fundamentally misses what kind of antagonist he is right mm -hmm. really this is a film about two competing orders uh two competing normative ideas of what the world should be you have the maitlands very idealized nostalgic small town and you have the Dietzes, 
uh, urban, uh, contemporary aesthetics, capital, the acquisition and, and maximization of assets, two normative visions of what American society should be, right? And so the whole point of Beetlejuice as a character is the disruption of both of those things. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. I guess I guess that brings us on to... We kind of started to talk about uh, Lydia, but maybe we should sort of just talk about Lydia a little bit more. Um, yeah, yes. what do you think about her as a character? Uh, wonderful and amazing. <laughs> you know, as, as I said at the top of the show, right? Like, I think a, 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 lot, a lot of people that I've known, myself included, like, were drawn to Beetlejuice in, like, middle school, high school, because we are the strange and unusual, right? Like, there's something really compelling about her character. Yeah, uh, and because it's Winona Ryder. <laughs> right, yeah, and, like, Winona Ryder, incredibly phenomenal, incredibly talented, uh, a fellow criminal, so we all we all salute her activities and, like... We we um, we we can do no other thing but stand. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like, and I think like there's a darkly compelling reality to Lydia's character, right? Like that I think really speaks to teens who are kind of like in who are being pushed to the realms of of their social groups, being pushed to the outside, right? Because Lydia, you know, she, she's obsessed with, like, a, a weird art medium that, like, you know, by the time Beetlejuice is, is coming into vogue, you know, like, film photography is is waving goodbye. You know, we're, we're about to turn the corner into the brave new world of digital photography. And so there's something there's something archaic about her. She, she, she's anachronistic, you know, in, in her dress and in her attitude. And then, like, you've got, like, her, her depression and her suicidal ideation you know, like she is, she is darkly compelling because I think, and even a lot of people who aren't like you, you don't have to be like a, a Victorian style goth and cosplaying that aesthetic twenty four seven, to to sympathize and live in Lydia's condition. I mean, you don't have to. You don't. Have, I mean, it helps. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, completely, completely, and there's. That it's it's she's very relatable, and she's also oh, yeah. she's also just nice and and respectful to the Maitlands, and seems to genuinely really care for them. Yeah, no, no, that is that is one hundred percent accurate and true. Like much much like Beetlejuice, and like like what I was getting at earlier is like Lydia is nice and good to the Maitlands, but they're they're it's not purely innocent. Right. Yeah. Like she's not she's not purely innocently nice to them out of the kind of like naivety of childhood, you know, where you're just kind of nice to everybody for no good reason. I was just going to say, like, she sees them as a potential escape. Yeah, just again, just like Beetlejuice. Lydia sees the Maitlands as a vehicle for her own future endeavors. Uh, but it's not it's not as utilitarian as that, right? Because. Uh, by the film's end, uh, which we should, you know, probably talk about, they are uh, together. You know, they they are mm -hmm. all living together. This was, it's not really sort of well uh, kind of summed up, but it's like they've, they've basically formed this sort of semi-communal -com living situation where the Maitlands and the Dietzes all live in the same house now. It was big enough mm -hmm. to begin with. This, this kind of acquisitive battle over the asset has stopped and uh, Lydia has 
a a much wider and and seemingly much more kind of enthusiastic uh network of support no no you're completely right i think for, for me one of the most compelling things about the ending is that uh you know L lydia lydia does dialectics right you know uh, thesis antithesis synthesis right like you know like you have her and beetlejuice right our protagonist and our antagonist and and the film the film doesn't end with Beetlejuice's defeat. The film ends with Beetlejuice, you know, back in that bureaucracy, trying to scam his way out of it again. Right? Beetlejuice is still fighting for a way out of the system. You know, even even if uh, his endeavor or his way of doing that is misguided, and he's kind of always tripping over his own hubris. But like it, the end of Lydia's character uh, synthesizes her encounter with Beetlejuice. She absorbs part of it. Right. I'm really happy you you brought up Harry Belafonte at the end, because what what does Lydia do? What is like the final thing we see her do, right? Like she she has the Maitlands put on a Harry Belafonte song and and she dances with a team of ghost football players as she levitates. I I I don't know about the ending because I I get what you're saying, but I I kind of find her ending in particular just to mm -hmm. be a little just to be a kind of there's a kind of slight melancholy to it because it isn't like the anti-work Harry Belafonte. Oh yeah. It, yeah. It's like, it's just the, the party having a good time. Harry Belafonte song. Um, you know, she's just happy. She's just dancing. But the thing that kind of gets me is like, uh, she's not really the anachronism anymore. Right. She's, mm -hmm. she's lost. She's lost the pale makeup and the, and the fun funeral veil and the black hat. And she's now in Catholic school and she has friends and she comes home and she's done really well on her test. And the, like, so it's like all of those interesting kind of Gothic overtones to her character have kind of been sort of like burned away. Uh, and it's like, well, you've had your your experience by nearly being forced into marriage with a thousand year old chaos demon. Time for you to settle <laughs> down. It's like, right. it's like, it's like, basically, this film is like the gothic suburbia, but suburbia kind of wins. It's it's like, and this this is what I said in the precy. This is the best example of capitalist realism in in all of media, and and like that is a huge statement, and I. Yeah, I'm 80% confident I can defend it. Because <laughs> like, because what does Lydia want? She, she literally, we have a scene where she, she's writing her suicide note. She wants to die in, in under no uncertain terms because the world of the living is so bleak and dissatisfying for her. And like, we had to be real here. Part of the reason it's bleak and dissatisfying as it is for so many people who go through this very real struggle is because of capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, she lives yeah. in a world where she cannot be free. Right. The best outcome for her is a decent job. And that is in and of itself a crisis of, of, of grim leaden realities. Right. But at the end of this movie, Lydia gets what she wants. Lydia at the end of this movie is part dead. She, she lives with ghosts. She levitates. She dances with the dead. You know, she, she is able to access what she thought she wanted this whole time. But what what undergirds that? She still has to go to school. She still has to do her tests. You know, like she she's reading the um, handbook for the recently deceased. You know, the 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 spark notes for death. 
you know, like she she's able to cross the veil and find that on the other side is exactly where she was standing at the beginning. And so, like, I think that you're you're absolutely correct in, in your assessment of this the, the the ending of this movie. There, there's a grimness to it, and that grimness is that capitalism's still there. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, I I I think that this is basically Burton's thing is this fair is this hyper idealization of a certain vision of american suburbia um mm-hmm. but we, we he ignores or doesn't or doesn't want to take into account what underpins that suburbia uh, which as we've talked about in so many other horror movies uh, maybe the best exploration of it is, is halloween john Carp- john carpenter what oh, underpins yeah. suburbia is like violence and 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 horror and and you know, kind of a nihilistic emptiness, but Burton is like, no, it's lovely. Look, she's da- she's dancing now, and she's got like a ghost mom and a ghost dad, uh, and it's like, I I think it's not able to kind of get past this <laughs> idealized vision of the suburbs as being like the ultimate normative good way of living, and even if there is a little bit of kind of weirdness, a little bit of darkness that's allowed, it it can never dominate no no i I think you're i think you're completely correct and i think like another part of the analysis that's missing here and and this appears in a lot of burton's work right is there's this kind of there's the lamentation that become that comes with being like very outwardly goth you know Mm -hmm. like if if you this is such a dated reference because it's not true anymore but like if you would have been buying all of your clothes at hot topic in the mid 2000s (laughs) You know, and you've you've got you've got like the bondage pants and the like the like uh, you know like over oversized fucking jeans and shit like that, like the standard fucking goth attire of that era, Mansonite mall goth garb. Yeah, yeah. you know, like like there the, there's a, there's a social stigma that you can't go to work dressed like that unless you've got a cool boss. And I think it, it, part of part of the secret sauce that Burton is missing here is like, why can't you go? Why why can't you go to work dressed like Marilyn Manson? Precisely. You, you know, it's and it's it has it has nothing to do with that being an uncommon outfit. That is not part of the math here, right? Like that's that's just what that's the that's the propaganda of what the real math is. What underlies the surface is like the inherent fascistic impulse of capitalism. You know, all workers must be the same. You know, you all have to be uniformed. You you have to be regimented because if you start to break free from the mold. Like we see with Lydia at the beginning of the film and with Beetlejuice, you will be met with discipline. I I, I kind of want to extend this a little bit further as well. Like if we yeah. if, if if I can use a slightly an anachronistic term to describe Lydia, it is that she is a melancholic. Uh and that um that that that's a very common phenomena historically and very influential on romanticism and the Gothic, classically speaking, right? Uh, this mm-hmm. idea of of a, of a melancholic affect towards the world uh and all of that is stripped out of her by the end but given everything that you've said occasionally and i think i think probably like many if not everyone listening to this will have felt this melancholia seems like a very reasonable response to the world that we live in you know mm-hmm. her her behavior is is uh, uh this 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 um affected style of melancholia uh is given her situation seems perfectly appropriate 
but that has to be kind of stripped out and she has to be happy and dancing at the end because Burton wants suburbia to win. It's, it is, it is capitalist realism. It's suburbia realism. You know, it will always be, there will always be the white picket fence for eternity. There will always be the perfectly manicured lawns for eternity. And you might have like, you know, your hot topic outfit, but it stays in your room and you go to the Catholic school and wear your uniform. That's, that's what eternity looks like. And that is, is wildly grim. (laughs) There is one final thing I think we should talk about. Um, Yes. What are your opinions about sandworms? Um, my, my, uh, controversial hot take is we have to get the spice from somewhere, John. The the spice (laughs) won't mine itself. The, the spice indeed must flow. (laughs) Um, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice is, is kind of like the hero prince we've been waiting for. I, I think, I think is the take here. It's really bold of, of Tim Burton to put an entry into the Dune universe like this. Uh, yeah, I mean, Dennis Villeneuve obviously is is heavily influenced by this uh, it, with the the Dune remake, uh, and I I just hope that Michael Keaton will get his Beetlejuice cameo. I mean, it really to 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 be quite honest, I mean, like I, I don't want to be too much of like a you know hashtag fanboy here, but if your Dune remake doesn't have Beetlejuice, it's not a Dune remake. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's non-canonical. It's, it's, it's fanfic. The, it's one of the weirdest bits of this film, right? Is is it is how this film ends, uh, and it ends with Gina Davis riding a sandworm from Saturn back into this house in Connecticut to send Michael Keaton's Chaos Demon back into the bureaucratic nightmare of the afterlife. It's so weird. <laughs> it's 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 so weird because it's never set up at any point in the film. I think this is the thing that kind of gets me. And it is very much a kind of sandworm ex machina uh, where we, we, we need a way of resolving the plot, but we've run out of ideas. So we just go sandworm, <laughs> Gi- giant sandworm. <laughs> uh, and she can ride them now for some reason. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, like they set up the sandworms, you know, uh, uh, at the beginning when they try and leave their home, but like, there yeah you're right like there is there's no establishment as for why this this is a thing in the beetlejuice universe but i i love that because that that makes beetlejuice as a movie transcend right like this is a work of weird fiction because this whole time we thought we were we were dealing with kind of like a simplified afterlife and and some spoopy ghosts but in reality this is like trans-dimensional aliens from Saturn like there are there are so many strange layers to this and I think there's almost something hopeful in the appearance of the sandworm you know because like we we have no we have no way to articulate the nature of the sandworm you know like the, the sandworm just is it's its own thing it's in its own context right like the sandworm exists beyond it's the only thing in this movie that's outside of the purview of that bureaucracy like yeah. like that, that bureaucracy is totalizing it's subsumed all of life and death except for the sandworms from saturn you know like they they exist outside of that world outside of that context and from the way that juno talks about them from the way that beetlejuice fears them 
the sandworms cannot be subsumed back into that context, or at least that, or at least like that, that, that bureaucracy hasn't found a way yet to bring the sandworms in. And I think like that, that there's kind of instructors, there's something instructive there. There's always something beyond the horizon. You know, there's always something to reach for. There's always something that can't truly be, be hemmed in with the leaden horizon of capitalist realism, right? There, there, there's, a, there's a sandworm on Saturn waiting to come crashing through your living room. Uh, I find that a kind of <laughs> weirdly hopeful way of framing the ending then. Because uh, who knows, maybe in a few years, whilst, whilst Lydia is trapped in this suburban uh, eternal recurrence, a gigantic sandworm will just crash through the door <laughs> and chaos will reign once again. But speaking of endings, we should probably talk about what happens to Beetlejuice. Yeah. Uh, what, do you th- what do you think about his ending? Um, you know, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting, right? Because like we, we find Beetlejuice where we meet him, right? He is, he's struggling to escape the bureaucracy. You know, he's he's trapped within it and he's still trying to find his way out. And just like just like every means tested neoliberal, quote unquote, public service, you know, we see we see him with his like help ticket and he's like number nine trillion in line or something like that. It's it's sort of like he doesn't seem to take it like too hard, though. You know, he's sort of like, oh, well, here we go again. Uh, as if he's he as if he's kind of like his function is just to 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 kind of be the gadfly to this Reaganite uh, bureaucratic nightmare that he's constantly wandering in and out of. And I mean, like it's it's both damning and it, and, and the kind of like it's Sisyphean, right? Like you know, you're number nine nine trillion in a wait list. You know, like that 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 is a that is a Greek mythological punishment. <laughs> As Camus, as Camus would say, we must imagine Beetlejuice happy, uh, right? And I think, it, in a way, he is because for for Beetlejuice, like he's not defeated; he just has to restart. He just has to continue, right? Like his his struggle to leave the system behind just keeps going. And you're right that there is something kind of curiously hopeful about that, right? Especially in in a kind of political situation that seems like that bureaucratic nightmare that it has no externality um we've got this reminder that there are always sandworms we will always we'll always be able to like trick our way up to the front of the queue and see if we can get out <laughs> of the system once again uh i didn't think that you would you would have me thinking of beetlejuice as a figure of revolutionary optimism but there we go i mean what what else what else is there so we we uh, hope you're having a happy Halloween, <laughs> and you've enjoyed these month's treats, and that you may a sandworm may come crashing through your living room, and you could ride it on to a better tomorrow. Yeah, we've released uh, ten episodes in the month of October. That is a staggering uh, uh, release schedule for us. So we're g- we're going to be taking uh, the first week of November off. So three episodes instead of four. I know the how will you ever wait. Uh, but absence, as they say, makes the spooky heart grow fonder. Indeed. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening through this month of us celebrating reaching 100 episodes. 
have a very happy Halloween and stay spooky. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 